0: If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, open them to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, and our text for this morning will be verses 14 through 29. Follow along with me, Mark 6, 14 through 29. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah. And others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because, she had married, because he had married her. An opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders of the leading men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you, up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said the head of John the Baptist. And she came in and immediately with haste to the king and asked saying I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought him his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This ends the reading of the word of God. The great explorer, Ernest Shackleton, led several British expeditions to the Antarctic in the early 1900s, which, of course, even now is a dangerous thing to do. Consider what it would have been like back then to travel to that region, To the South Pole, frigid temperatures, rough seas, lack of sleep, long stretches of darkness, uncertainty of making it back alive. It doesn't sound like the type of adventure many of us would be willing to sign up for, does it? It is believed that before one of his expeditions, Shackleton put an ad in the newspaper for others to join him. The ad may be more uh, legend or myth than fact, but it went something like this. Men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition in the event of success. Now, how many of us would make haste to go on such a journey? It is believed many signed up to go with him. But we would think about something like that in the newspaper and say, wow, the cost is so high. Is the risk worth the reward? So in order to follow Shackleton, you had to be willing to risk it all. You had to be willing to suffer and even die. Many signed up. And what we see here before us in Mark chapter 6 is one who did risk it all and was willing to risk it all to suffer and die as a faithful follower of God. And so the question before us here, as we will unpack this text. Are you willing to pay the price as a follower of Jesus? That is our question we bring in. And so as we consider here in Mark chapter 6, we find ourselves in the middle once again of a Mark sandwich. You would notice in all of chapter 6... It's pointing to Jesus. Jesus is rejected in the beginning at, at Nazareth. A prophet is without honor except in his hometown. And so Jesus is rejected in Nazareth. And then the next section we'd see in Mark 6 is Jesus commissioning his apostles for their first kind of independent ministry trip. And he sends them out. And you would notice here at the end of verse, uh, verse 30 in chapter 6... You see that the apostles return to Jesus. They're sent out in verse 12. They return in verse 30. And so sandwiched in the middle of this account is the death of John the Baptist. What does the death of John the Baptist have to do with all of this ministry that's going on? Well, Mark wants his readers, and by virtue of his readers, us, to understand the cost of ministry. You would see in the beginning of chapter 6 the reality of ministry facing rejection. Jesus is rejected. As followers of Christ, we too will walk in the same manner. We can face rejection. and might be close to home. We also see in the other part that the reality of ministry is that we are sent on mission. There's a mission at, at stake. There's, there's a work to be done. And here we see the reality of ministry in verses 14 through 29 that it will cost you everything. And so by way of headings and structure here, to help with our understanding of this passage, I would supply to you this first heading, that we see a tale of wickedness. We see a tale of wickedness take place here, in this story that was just read. And the first thing I want to call to your attention in verses 14 through 16, is a wicked man. A wicked man. This is... King Herod that we are introduced to. There's a lot of Herods in the New Testament and sometimes we need to make sense of which Herod are we dealing with right now. This is Herod and another name is Antipas. He's Herod the Tacharch. Literally he means the ruler of one-fourth or one-quarter of the region. He's the son of Herod the Great. This is the the, the Herod the King at the time of Jesus' birth. This is his son that we have here. But Herod the Great, he died shortly after The birth of Jesus, he's the one who orders the killing of the babies in Bethlehem. And so after the death of Herod the Great, Augustus, who was emperor in Rome, divided up Herod the Great's kingdom into fours. This is where you get the name tetrarch. And so Herod, his second son here, Antipas, the second born... He receives the region of Galilee and out to the east side of the Jordan River. Well, there's another person that's mentioned here, just uh, his name, Philip. Philip's his half-brother, same father, different mother. And Philip is another tetrarch, and he is the king of the region north of where Herod is. And so um, just helping us to make sense of who this guy is. While it says he's a king, he's a vassal king. He's a puppet king he's been set up by Rome to just oversee the affairs of Jewish culture there and to keep the peace so it were but they're vassal kings meaning that although they are of Jewish lineage they share their they swear their allegiance to Rome and what we notice here of king Herod is he's a power hungry Jew motivated by political success and military achievement. Furthermore, by just reading this passage alone, we know he is a wicked man. But I want to call your attention to verse 16 here. What we notice of him, too, is it says in 16, but when Herod heard of it, the ministry of Jesus, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. This is interesting. What we can notice here of Herod is he is a paranoid man. He killed John the Baptist and believes that Jesus is John the Baptist coming back from the dead. That's important and we'll make note of that as we would look at the, the whole structure of this passage. But I think a point to be made here concerning Herod that we can see principally in, even in this text. This is the result of living in unrepentant sin. Herod is paranoid because he knows that he has done something wrong. He's done a wicked act. And so he is fearful that Elijah or that John the Baptist is actually coming back from the dead to haunt him. The result of living in unrepentant sin, constantly looking over your shoulder. You know, brothers and sisters, we know that at times we can hide our sin from people, but we cannot hide our sin from our conscience and our creator. Herod here, in verses 14 through 16, we are introduced to a wicked man, and a wicked man enters into a wicked relationship, verses 17 through 20. Here John gives us a bit of an er, er, I'm sorry, Mark gives us a bit of an understanding of why Herod had killed John. We are introduced to Herodias, who is really the arch-villain of this entire account. She is really driving this whole wicked tale. Herod is the puppet. He's the puppet to Caesar. He's the puppet to his wife. And so what we see here is Herod and Herodias form an unholy union, a wicked relationship, both of which have been previously married, as we would see here. Verse 17, for it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. Now Mark doesn't give us the details of how this all took place, but Josephus does. And Josephus, interested in, in the political affairs of first century Judaism and some of these people, his account tells us that Herod and Herodias met on a trip to Rome, and they fell in love with each other. And they, can, they, have this, they conspire to divorce their spouses and get married to one another. And John the Baptist is well aware of this wicked act. And what we can see here of John is that he is a man of conviction and courage. And he boldly looks at Herod and tells him, and by implication Herodias, you are living in sin. What you are doing is not, there's no gray area here. This isn't a matter of conscience. This is sin. And you need to repent of this. Clearly from the law, Leviticus 18.16 reads, You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. If a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. There's no dancing around this, Herod. This is sinful, what you have done. It is not lawful, verse 18, for you to have your brother's wife. I want us to note here what John does not say. He doesn't come up to Herod and say, well, Herod, listen, are you a believer? What do you think about God? What do you think about God's law, Herod? Do you think that applies to you? Are you, are you a follower what, what I, I mean I, I don't want to overspeak or overstep here Herod because if you're not a believer then you know is the law really applied to you he did not have the attitude of that's his sin that's his problem no John what he saw was that the clear commands of God are being violated and he felt compelled to with courage and conviction and clarity to go to Herod and tell him exactly the truth of God's Word. This is an important point to make here, and this is something that we all need to recover. God's Word, as we've heard it read, we've heard the, the law even this morning, His moral law is binding on all of humanity, whether they believe it or not. And I think that's important that we understand that. Sin is never relative Sin is not how I define it or how you define it. One thing we will never find when we go into the Bible is our own opinions. No, it is, it is defined by the violation, the crossing over, the, the breaking, the transgressing of the law of God. The bar is not moved on what is sinful based off of what someone believes. The standard is objective and it has been given to us. Think about speed limits. I don't know how we might feel about speed limits, but there is an objective number right there. Officer, I thought that was a suggestion. 35, I went 50. How's that going to work out? The number's there. We are to abide by these things. The law has been given. So to the atheist, to the Jew, to the Muslim, to the Christian, to all people on planet Earth, they are called to submit and obey the word of God. If Jesus possesses all authority in heaven and on earth, which He does, then all are to submit to Him. To the atheist, to the Jew, to the Muslim, it is to convert; it is to turn from their sin and repent and trust in Jesus Christ. And to the Christian, we are to put ourselves under the law as we—not not, not unto salvation, but as the right use of the law—to guide us in lives that are pleasing to God. To not, to, to not submit is sin. And so what John did not do was he did not back down from political authority in his day when the clear commands of God were transgressed. We live in Rhode Island where separation of church and state was really began, right? And we recognize spheres of authority. But well, There are times when the church, we must stand against the state and we must stand for righteousness and oppose wickedness just as John did here. He is certainly an example of upholding the law of God. And so what's the result? What's the result of John and his boldness? Herodias hates him. Herod fears him. Herod is a perplexed man, we read here, because he knows John is righteous and he's got his wicked wife who's trying to get John killed and Herod feels stuck in the middle, but he himself is a wicked man as well. but he wants to appease his wife. And so this wicked relationship that we see here that was formed in this most unholy union leads to a wicked plot in verses 21 through 24. We notice here Herodias is looking for any way possible to get John killed. Her wickedness knows no bounds. If we haven't noticed yet about her, people are just objects to serve her purposes. She uses her daughter. She uses Herod. She uses whatever means she can to achieve her wicked intentions. And so what we have here is a scene that opens up in verse 21 that she sees as an opportunity that Mark records for us. Herod's having a birthday party. Herod has a birthday party. John's locked up in the basement jail. It's par- this party that's going on here. It's kind of the who's who of Galilee: noble men, leading men, military leaders. You had to be on a certain list and a certain status to be invited to this party. The men are no doubt drinking and eating. The women, culturally, would have been in a separate room. And then Herodias launches her wicked plan. The most wicked mother. Notice what she tells her daughter to do. Go out in front of these men who have been partying and drinking and dance for them. Herod's weak. A terrible thing. A terrible thing for a mother to ask of her child, especially her younger daughter. But this is what happens. And so her daughter goes along with it. She doesn't know the full plan, but she follows her mother's orders and goes out and dances before the men, no doubt in a sensual way. It pleased Herod in his eyes. He he liked what he saw. This perplexed man shows himself to be pitiful. He looks at her and says, Whatever you want from me, this is so pleasing to me. Whatever Whatever you want, whatever you wish, I will give to you. And it's as though she's toying with him. She doesn't answer. So a second time Herod comes back. Notice again in verse 22, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. Verse 23, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Well, it doesn't sound like a, sounds more like a rash vow to me. In fact, remember Herod's a puppet king. He doesn't even control his kingdom. He's trying to give away what he doesn't have the authority to give away. it's really stating here how desperate and pitiful this man is. Enticed by the lust of his flesh, he offers what he cannot deliver. As I alluded to here, this is a rash vow that he does. Reminded of the rash vow in Judges chapter 11, verses 30 and 31. Japheth's vow, whatever walks through the door, I will sacrifice it was his daughter. And so Herod offers this vow and it is uttered. And by the by, the moment that the last word comes off his lips, no doubt Herodias in the other room is listening and she says, yes, I got him. I'm going to get what I want now. And that's to silence John the Baptist once and for all. There are some that Take this text, and I just want to kind of make a point here. Um, there are some religious groups that, that I'm aware of that look at this, and, and they argue that birthdays are, are evil because the only account of a birthday given in the Bible is Herod's birthday. I think we want to be careful in understanding this, that this is not Mark's point to tell us that birthdays are bad. The context here matters. The immediate context is showing us that wickedness knows no bounds and that the whole point is that ministry is going to cost you everything. So I wouldn't develop a theology saying that birthdays are evil based off of this. But if you don't want to celebrate birthdays just because you don't like being reminded of another year, that's a different reason. Or that gravity seems to constantly be working against us as the years continue to pile up. But I would not use Mark 6 to make make a proof text of why birthdays are evil. Nonetheless, we do see here a wicked party, a wicked plot that leads to the wicked request. Again, this is a tale of wickedness that knows no bounds. Verses 24 to 26, we see this wicked request. Herodias tells her daughter to answer to Herod, I want the head of John the Baptist. Now this tale of wickedness has reached its climatic moment here. Herod is stuck. Herod is stuck now in a place he didn't want to be in. He fears John, but he fears his reputation even more. So he's gone from perplexed, puppet, pitiful and pathetic, and that's all for peas now. But this is what he should have said in this moment. He could have had a way out of this situation here. He should have said that this is sinful. This is a sinful request. I offered to grant you whatever you wished. I did not offer to commit a crime and to kill the innocent. Proverbs 17, 15, He who justifies the wicked and condemns the righteous this is an abomination to the Lord. Yet instead of acting like a true king, that, is, that, that, that models justice and righteousness. Herod acts consistent with his character. And so the wicked request the head of John the Baptist is made, and it ends in a wicked result. To summarize of verses 27 through 29, the executioner is called. John is called up from the basement, and he's sent to have his head cut off. Herod doesn't want to give in but does give in to the pressure. John is guilty of no crime, but he dies a criminal's death. And he is taken by some of his disciples and he is buried. Now it is interesting. Remember how the passage started. Herod is thinking there's a resurrection. John is the innocent who dies a criminal's death and is taken away and buried by his friends. I would argue here that Mark is showing us a type in John, foreshadowing the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Where John's the type, Jesus is the fulfillment, even here. Think about it. Jesus is seized because of his message. Pilate is perplexed because he knows Jesus to be innocent. But he, too, gives in to the pressure in order to appease others, and sends Jesus to be executed. Except, understand, type and fulfillment. There's escalation. John stayed dead. Jesus, though executed, a criminal's death on a cross. Three days later, the grave could not keep him. Jesus, the in fact, when Jesus's resurrection, it did happen. But we're not given here any details of John's disposition at the time of his execution. But if he was anything like Stephen in the book of Acts, and the martyrs of church history, and if they show us anything, I think it's safe to conclude that John was fearless to the end. Fearless in living, fearless in dying. Roughly 31 years old. Gives his life, loses his head, To be faithful. And so out comes a platter. I'm sure that was a party killer. But the head of John the Baptist served to the girl who is just a puppet as well. And she gives it to her mother. And the evil mastermind behind it all. Brothers and sisters, what we see here is a tale of wickedness. A true tale of wickedness. And I think what we can learn from this here is that wickedness unchecked will result in the most heinous evil. What's the first use of the law to restrain evil? What are they doing? They're walking away. They're, they're, they're turning away from the law of God. Sin hates righteousness. Remind you of John 3:19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So this is a tale of wickedness. But I don't think we would do this text justice if we did not also consider the testimony of worthiness and look at John the Baptist and the life that he lived. Remember how Mark starts his gospel? It's the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And this is our conclusion of the life of John the Baptist who is one of the most extraordinary men that ever stepped foot on planet earth. So let us look at his life and consider his worthiness and I want to supply to you three things concerning John the Baptist. First, that he is a man of conviction. He is a man of conviction. He was completely convinced that God had spoken and calls people everywhere to repent. If you took all the Gospels and you just started lining up John the Baptist, and who, told, who warned you to flee from the wrath, of, wrath to come? You brood of vipers. We wouldn't call John the Baptist necessarily nice at times but he was true mark 1:4 john appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins he was a man of conviction he trusted in christ in john 1:29 the next day he saw jesus coming toward him and says behold the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world all four of the gospel writers Give a personal salute to John the Baptist. Matthew gives us three different accounts of John his ministry, his imprisonment, his death. Mark gives us the most details of, John, of, Mark, of John's death. Luke shows us the miraculous nature surrounding John's birth. And John, the gospel writer, gives us the most details of his ministry. He is a very important person, he's a man of conviction. And his conviction breeds, secondly, his consistency. He is a man of consistency. His message was the same wherever it went. And to whomever he went, from common people to religious people, kings and all those in between. He didn't change his message based off of who he was talking to. In Matthew we read that he was preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that was his message. He wasn't just consistent in his message, he was also consistent in his life. A life of faithfulness and humility. He had a mega following. He had a mega church in the wilderness. No bells and whistles, dressed like a crazy man. He had no great worship team. He didn't need all the stuff. And even 20 years after his death, Paul encounters his disciples in Ephesus. Apollos comes from the ministry of John the Baptist. But he didn't let his platform fuel pride. Remember his most famous saying, we quote it, he must increase and I must decrease. He had one primary job to do, preach Jesus and get out of the way. He's a man of consistency. And third, we would see of John is that he was a man of courage. Conviction breeds consistency and it is manifest in courage. And I think there's three questions we should ask of ourselves. Do I believe these things? The gospel, the implications of the gospel, the word of God. Do I believe these things? This is my conviction. Do I live these things? This is my consistency. Do I share these things? This is my courage. And our prayer is that through the work of the Holy Spirit in us, that we would grow in our conviction, we would grow in our consistency, we would grow in our courage. So John, with conviction, consistency, and courage, stood right in the face of the civil magistrate and condemned his sin and refused to apologize for God. Proverbs 28.1 reminds me greatly of John the Baptist. It says, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. He could not remain silent. When the wicked around him paid no regard to righteous commands of God, John stood as a bold and faithful witness. So let's ask, did he waste his life? 31 years old, 32, somewhere, or somewhere around there? Should he have toned it down a little bit? Maybe think, hey, John, easy on the rhetoric. That's not very inclusive language. Some people might get offended. What you are saying is true, but maybe could you soften the tone a little bit, John? You might get more people, you know, if you can just kind of round the edges. Maybe, John, if you keep up this pace, someone might want to kill you. Brothers and sisters, I would submit to you, we need more men like John the Baptist. I think of what Dr. Steve Lawson says. He says, the problem with so many preachers today is nobody wants to kill them anymore. I stand with him. Compromise, apologies, and TED Talks fill the land on Sunday mornings. Because convictional, consistent, courageous preaching has been lost. And as a result, weak pulpits produce weak pews. Martin Lloyd-Jones was asked by a young man one time, what's the difference between preaching and teaching? And Lloyd-Jones says, young man, if you have to ask the question, you've never heard preaching. So did he waste his life? And the answer is absolutely not. It is a testimony of worthiness. He stands with those mentioned In Hebrews 11, that others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. And here's the line, of whom the world was not worthy. What makes John the Baptist such an extraordinary person? Well, he's the last Old Testament prophet and he's the first New Testament evangelist. He holds a place in a most extraordinary time that has never been paralleled. In fact, he's the greatest man born of a, of a natural generation to ever cross the horizon of this earth. Greater than Abraham, greater than Moses, greater than Joshua, greater than Elijah. Because Jesus says in Matthew 11:11, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one, greater than John the Baptist. That's pretty high praise from the Son of God. This is a testimony of worthiness. And so how do we respond? How do we respond to something like this? Yes, we can read the historical accounts. We can understand the narrative here, the message that is being given to us. While John is extraordinary, his conviction his courage, his consistency, that's what we're called to do. Ordinary faithfulness looks extraordinary in many cases. This is the reality of ministry. We we too must be willing to give it all up for the sake of Jesus and the gospel, even if that means our very lives. Brothers and sisters, let me remind you, when Jesus called you to himself, he called you into his ministry as Bonhoeffer says, when Jesus bids a man to come, he says, come and die. Maybe not vocational in ministry, but we are all ministers of the gospel of grace. Jesus tells his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's the great paradox, is it not? In dying we live. In self-denial we experience sin the Savior's embrace. We have been called to the same struggle, the same struggle as John the Baptist, the same struggle as the Apostle Paul, and even of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So we must come to the point in our lives where we can identify with Paul to live as Christ, to die as Gain, For I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Living for Christ begins when we are willing to die for him. And our task is to live the crucified life. Will you this day live that life? Maybe some of us just need that reminder that it is the cross before the crown. It is the cross before glory. When we are making our way as pilgrims to the celestial city, but we've been given a cross to bear in this life. I'm reminded of a quote by Spurgeon, and we'll close with this. The question was asked, are you ready to suffer or are you ready to serve? And Spurgeon says, quote, you have not come to the highest style of readiness until you are ready for whatever the will of God may appoint for you. This is the reality of ministry, that it will cost you everything. Let me remind you that a disciple is not above his master, that Jesus carried his cross so that we could be reconciled to him. A disciple is a disciplined learner. It is a follower. And we are to follow in the the example that Christ has given to us. That we too would be willing to lay down our lives for the sake of the gospel. That Christ would be glorified. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We praise you. And we recognize, Lord, that you have called us to a most holy calling. Lord, you've also bid us to come and to die. So, Father, I pray that you would forgive us where we are seeking comfort and ease and not living the crucified life as we should, as we ought. Lord, as we've been able to enjoy a time of peace and ease in the world in the land that we live in, Lord, oh, let us not fear and run from persecution, Lord, but give us discernment, boldness, courage, conviction, consistency, that we would be mindful of what you've called us to do. Lord, we thank you for the testimony of John the Baptist, of whom the world was not worthy. Lord, we pray, and we don't seek our own recognition, we don't seek our own uh, vain glory, Lord, but that it would be said of us, That at the end of our lives, of whom the world was not worthy, as we gave ourselves for you. So, Father, may we live for Christ this day. May we carry this cross daily for the glory that is due His name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we will.